This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 770, A Conversation with Mark Wade. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 770. Oh my god, we're closing in on 800, everybody. Uh, this episode is an exciting one for me, as we once again welcome back to the show Mark Wade. This is his third time on the show. Uh, if you do want to go back to the archives and check out uh, Mark's first two appearances on the show, you can check out episode 620, which is a conversation exclusively, for the most part, about Ruse, uh, which was uh, part of uh, Mark Wade's work for CrossGen. And then uh, that was from October 25th, 2018. Uh is it that long ago? Oh my god, I thought it was recent. Uh, then we talked with Mark again, November 11th, 2019, I guess that's the one I was thinking of, uh, which was a conversation with Mark Wade and Brian Augustine as we talked about Archie 1941 and Archie 1955. Uh, so this is his third time on the show. This time we delve uh, into his work on the recent miniseries History of the Marvel Universe uh, which with uh, Javier Rodriguez, which was a really fantastic book. Um, and then we also talk about some other stuff. Uh, we end up kind of segueing into talking about Kazar. Uh, there's a bunch of different things that kind of crop up in the uh, in the in the uh, flow of our conversation. Oof, that was that was a really hard word to come up with. Apparently, um, I do want to apologize. There was at times where uh, the connection uh, kind of cut out a little and it kind of slowed down. Um, so I do apologize that at times it kind of his answers get a little bit garbled. But uh, it's still still Mark Wade talking about comics, and I I think I could always listen to Mark Wade talking about comics. He's uh, one of the most knowledgeable and uh, well spoken people talking about comics, and he just has such a interesting handle on his craft. So it's always a, a, a sure uh, pure joy to be able to talk to him about anything he's ever done. I, I it could be about any project, and I would relish the chance to talk with Mark about it. But this time I was talking about a book I really loved, uh, History of the Marvel Universe, and again, Kazar was a book I really enjoyed as well, uh, so we talk about some stuff there as well. Uh, so thanks again for downloading this episode. You can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, rate and review the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Um, our next non-reviews episode, which will be episode 772, is a conversation with Andy Renton. Andy Renton is the creator um, uh, and sole artist of the uh, the acclaimed Owly series, uh, I think Eisner Award winning at one point, um, originally published by Top Shelf Books. Um, it's a Top Shelf Productions. Anyways, it was originally by Top Shelf, and now it's, um, you know, he, he's, he's working with Scholastic's graphics imprint, and uh, they're reprinting uh, the original books, but now they're in color. It's really, really exciting, and I uh, get to talk with Andy all about that, and that'll be our, epi- our next non-reviews episode. But you came here to talk, or to hear, listen to me speak with Mark Wade, so let's jump right into the conversation with comic book's illustrious Mark Wade, also current publisher of Humanoids. Enjoy! Mark, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? Good. Happy to be here. Glad to have you. So I have to ask, since our our last uh, time that we had you on the show uh, late last year, um, you took over the publishing gig at uh, Humanoids, which is kind of the most interesting time to suddenly become a publisher. So what has that transition been like? (laughs) Yeah. Interesting is is an understatement. My very first day on the job, in an act of... I said to the staff, I have seen every, and now suddenly here we are. Um, it has been, we're home, everybody, we've got the 
to ride this thing out at however long it lasts. That's the beauty of being uh, somebody who's in the book more than they are in the periodical humanoids is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, doing our best. It's uh, it's it's just we've all learned how to use Zoom, you know, immediately, and and uh, without that, I don't know where we would be. For sure, yeah. It's 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 got to be like it's, it's so disruptive. It's to every industry, but obviously to you know the the comic industry, it's a lot more kind of seismic. I mean, as you said, at least with humanoids being more on the periodical side, it's maybe less effective. But I mean, on your freelance side, I mean, that's got to kind of grind things like were you already kind of easing out of the freelance work to kind of focus on being the publisher of humanoids or how was that kind of working out anyway that that was the plan i mean i always wanted to keep a foot in uh unfortunately dr strange is one of those books where it was pencils down until things clear up uh you know like a third of their other books um and the other places have Again, put stuff on hold, put stuff on pause. So on a freelance level, that that sucks. But again, it could be so much worse because at least I have a a regular job, uh, you know, a regular paycheck through Humanoids, for which I'm very grateful. And we're obviously we're going to, you know, we're keeping everybody on staff. We're not furloughing anybody during the duration. So, you know, I do want to keep an, you know, a foot in there at at, uh, at Marvel, at other companies. I've certainly got the leeway and the the flexibility to do so with my job that was part of what I negotiated but that's mostly just because I like I said I just hate to leave that world completely behind uh, it's not like publishing isn't a full-time job man mm. so I guess that brings up the question like how how did that conversation come up with humanoids to kind of say you know we want you to, to step up and, and be the publisher of, of, of the uh, of the company like because that's a big jump well I mean I've been I've been consulting there for about a year and change it's a huge jump. It's, uh, I mean, I've been consulting there for like a, you know, a year and a half and sort of being their consigliere and kind of walking them through the American market. And I just got to be more and more of a fixture there. And then Fabrice Geiger, who owns the company, sent me down and said, well, you know, in the future, you know, I'd like to, you to come in more often and I'd like you to do, you know, more of this and this and this like a publisher does and more of this and this and this like, you know, like a publisher does more of this and this and this kind of like, you know, like a publisher does. And I said, so you want me to be the publisher is basically what you're saying. So, yeah, that's what he wants. So yeah. luckily, none of this stuff was a secret to me. I mean, that's the, you know, the advantage I bring to the table is that I have done literally everything you can do in comics, including owning a store. I mean, every aspect of the job, every desk that there is to be, you know, in the industry, I've sat at at one time or another. So, you know, I'm still learning. Everybody's always learning all the time. And certainly you're learning in the middle of a pandemic, but you know, I have a lot of experience to get to bring to the table. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess they, they definitely picked uh, you know, a good person to kind of weather, go through such a, a weird instable period. Cause as you said, at least you've kind of worn all these hats because when you're going through again, something that no one has ever had to go through, it's good to kind of have someone, with a lot more different types right. of experience in all different ways. I think that that's, I think that is valuable for both of us. Um, geez, I mean, all for years, for years, my friends and I have been, you know, idly speculating about what life would be in a zombie apocalypse. And the one thing we never took into account out ever was that a huge part of the country would be denying the existence of zombies, even if they, even if, even as they were getting their arms gnawed off, so it is. It is weird times out there. Out there, absolutely. So, 
Uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you come back on the show is that one of the things you worked on last year, uh, which has recently come out in a, in a beautiful treasure edition, was the history of the Marvel Universe. I'm just curious how this book kind of came out. I'm guessing it was part of the kind of the 80th anniversary, but uh, how did this get pitched to you, or are you the one pitching it to them? Uh, it was pitched to me, actually. I mean, uh, Tom Brevoort and, and, and the, throughout the, you know, the, the, the project, and, and here's what we want. We want to it's, you know, you know we're just basically for a, a, span, a span. And he even, you know, and, and of course, this, you know, page one. You know, of this issue, Fantastic Four, page two, this would happen next, page three, this would happen next. So, and I knew what a fabulous storyteller Javier was, and I thought, this will be like falling off a log. This will be the easiest job in comics. And once more, hubris, once more, <laughs> mighty hubris, lent, you know, smacks me down with his hand because. And I'm not complaining. It was great, and I really enjoyed it. But holy smokes, especially when you get to the '90s and the and having to figure out a way to condense, you know, Jonathan Hickman's Secret War saga into, you know, four four hundred words. That's 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 the kind of the kind of stuff I was having to do as we got closer and closer. And it, it was, and also, you know. The last time we saw something like this done was with the DC history of the DC universe back in what eighty six, I guess eighty six, eighty seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Marv Wolfman and George Perez did something very similar with text and pictures, but it's been you know it's been 30, 35 years since this, thirty five years more history for Marvel and thirty five years more of retcons. So it's not just there's thirty five years of stuff that's happened since you know I was a super fan. There's also been so many retcons that go back to the early, earliest days of Marvel that I have to now take into account. So it was, it probably, probably was the most time consuming project page for page that I've done in a long, long time, time. But I think it turned out beautiful. And again, Javier, a, a, a dream to work with, with, mm-hmm. When you do something like this, which again you're you're marrying uh, a lot of text with these beautiful images, like how much direction are you giving in a script to Javier? Because like in some of it, he's like the the page for the Clone Saga was amazing at how many details he was able to kind of sneak in there that covered this two year period, and it was really amazing to kind of look at the detail. So I'm curious how much of that was in the script, or how much was that you know was kind of coming from the research team? Like how did this all get put together? Because again, he condenses so much visually. Oh yeah, it, he was a madman. I mean, I mean, the the way it basically broke down was if you know I would write a block of block of text for each you know thing that had to be on the page and tried to keep it to two or maybe three if I could could at the at the absolute most because I just didn't want to have to deal with four and five different things on a things on a page. And if it was a character, I just say Iron Man. But if it was an event, mutant Ma- mutant massacre, then I would try to pick the key moments or find like the key visual visual that would represent everything. Uh, and, and then he would build off of that and always, always, always make it better. My favorite page in the whole thing by a long shot is the Spider-Man page page when he first shows up. And I, cause he used it for those who haven't seen it. There's a big, big, like coming at you shot of Spider-Man and his foot's in your face. And he uses the webbing as, as panel borders to tell the origin of Spider-Man which is just amazing. 
Yeah, no. It, so that if, if the, that would be the page you would want to hang up in your office if if you were able to have a page from this book. That'd be the one. And in fact, now that you remind me, I should go call call Javier right now and make sure he hasn't sold it. <laughs> the um, so as you said, like this is a dense project. So what kind of notes? Well, not even notes, but like when you have the research team working on it, like are you kind of going to them and saying this is kind of what I need to know from this period or how directed were they? Or are they kind of giving you all the notes? Like, I'm just curious how putting it all together. Cause again, even coming up with a framework to kind of chronologically put everything is no small task. So I'm just, I'm just right. I'm endlessly fascinated by this book. It couldn't have been done without the research team. It was, I mean, Bree Vorton and I were the ones that to the best of my knowledge, and unless stuff was happening with it before I even got to it, you know, Brevor and I are the ones who sort of imposed the, the chronological structure. But, but uh, the way it would work is then the research team would go through, suggest their own visuals, which a lot of times I would I would take their suggestions, uh, um, and that's that's all they did in terms of the first draft of me me turning me doing stuff doing stuff was all me doing the research but then they were an invaluable backstop to come in and go go hey you forgot this or this is not quite how this happened or you know i know you looked this up on wikipedia but they screwed it up screwed it up <laughs> or you know stuff like that and so every issue had had you know, you know tons of notes on it which uh, a writer is kind of it makes you flinch a little bit but then i look clo- closely at it at it and like no 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 all this stuff we're all on the same team here and we all want this to be right and you know, we're taking in the best possible way every single word every single paragraph because we really all of us wanted this to come out and be as accurate as it possibly can can be for you know as long as it can be and knowing that we will eventually retcon stuff in that isn't in there uh, I mean to the degree where there's a scene at the end. I had to, what I what I hadn't really taken into account is if it's the history of the Marvel Universe, and I'm telling it from telling it from the end of time. Then I have to have an excuse for why Galactus doesn't, for why Galactus stops in the 21st century and then gives up his story. <laughs> and so what I because uh, clearly so much more happens. So what I basically built in was, uh, you know, as you saw that the Galactus slowly sort of coming apart, sort of you know becoming energy from matter, and he really only got that far as luck would have it because that's kind of where I wanted him to get before I turned him in energy. And I went through, we did a Marvel conference. I sat down with all the writers and all the editors and said, okay, what do you have coming up in like the next six or eight months past the publication of this that we can refer to things that Galactus can throw off as, you know, as things that the age of Kanshu is one that comes is one that comes to mind. Uh, and, I pulled as many of those in as I could, but added a couple more pre-board, and I added a couple more that we honestly don't exactly have plans for, but they sure sounded like neat ideas, and maybe somebody would around to them someday. <laughs> well, that, that was part of my thing, too, that it was so, it was so current. Like, I was showing it to uh, some friends, again, in the Treasure Edition, because it's so gorgeous, and having all the artwork be extra large, but the fact that it's so current, and, like, you have... You know the House of X with uh, with Xavier here, like it's right up to the minute. And then, as you said, like you even have things that weren't even going to come out yet, or at least that readers didn't know when you have this last issue. So it's so interesting to have, you know, it's so plugged in and so up to the moment. Yeah, part of the goal is you know, hopefully readers will have read those last few pages with the sort of a Galactus throwing out of what he sees in the near future, and then as they see stuff come out from Marvel over the next year, they'll go. 
go, oh, that's this thing. You know, I didn't know that's, oh, he mentioned this already. That's pretty cool. Were there things that you wanted to, that maybe you wanted to throw in from your own work that you've, you know, obviously you've worked a lot with different characters in Marvel before. Were there any specific stories you kind of wanted to kind of mention or throw in as well as part of this grand tapestry? I, I thought about it, but there really wasn't anything that, uh, I mean, as much work as I've done with Marvel, I, I've not, I've participated in some, but I've never, you know, uh, spearheaded one of the big crossover events and that's where you know that energy would go nor have i i really invented any lasting characters for marvel that you know will stand the test of time so far so between the two of those there wasn't really much option for me to, to get my let my ego get in the way <laughs> which is good um and i don't think i would have anyway i think i would have if anything i would have shied away from trying to put my own stuff in there just because i would have been sensitive to the Accusation that I was using it to bias against against other writers or whatever. Hmm. Is there anything in particular of yours that's kind of more unsung that would have been fun to kind of throw in there that would have just been one of those things that maybe hasn't re- received the appreciation that you know maybe it could have or just been one of those things that you worked on and you're like oh I wish more people liked this or more people talked about this this is that thing. That's a good question. Um, in the in the context of what we did, in the context of the whatever it was, 100, 120 pages plus, I don't think so. I don't think there's anything that I did that would warrant that level. I know I'm trying. This is not false modesty. I, just, I think I've written some good stories. I just don't think there's anything that would warrant a place among events like you know, onslaught. Well, actually, frankly, wait. I take it back. I was there for Onslaught, so there you go. <laughs> um, I was, you know, I, I did spear. I did help spearhead Onslaught, and and uh, the yeah, and the uh, X Men Alpha, X Men Omega. Yeah, that was me too. I, I see. I totally spaced over that. Um. So, but the, the answer to your question is not really. I don't. They can't think of anything that I would have snuck in otherwise. No. No. Uh, no. Kazar versus Thor. Uh, sorry, Thanos. <laughs> No, man, I just want to go on record because I have a thousand times. It was not my fault. It was not my fault. Jim Starlin's still mad at me. He's, I mean, I'm not kidding. He's still mad at me. I just, I, he doesn't understand. I dealt, played the card, dealt. You know, this is Thanos right now. He has no superpowers. Here, use him. Okay, that's what I guess I'll do. And I think we did a pretty good story, but me and Andy Kubert, but... Boy, I, I just, it, it, I gotta say, I've got with pretty thick skin about this stuff, but that one, hearing that always used as an example of, you know, a bad Thanos story makes me flinch. Oh, no, I was thinking I love I love it as a Kazar story. Like, I was so glad when they reprinted it. Like, I've always liked that stuff. Thank you. Right? You, you're, you and me, and that's it, because nobody else likes that story. But I'm, <laughs> I think it turned out pretty good. I mean, again, like I said, Playing the cards I'm dealt, right? That's the because it was supposed to be trying to remember the chronology. It was supposed to have been um, Korvac, and then it was supposed to have been Kang, and then we even did a silhouette of what we thought was Korvac, and then it was one of those things where two editors weren't talking to each other, and suddenly. You know, we couldn't use that character at the eleventh hour, so we re- we literally had to fit the silhouette. Like, okay, <laughs> who's about the size of that silhouette that could fit in there? Well, Thanos would be good. 
What's he up to? Well, that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can honestly say that I, again, I was a huge fan of your uh, your Kazar, and again, when they reprinted it about five six years ago, I was really happy to finally have it in a, in a nice soft cover collection I could put on my shelf because that was always a lot of good fun stuff, and it was fun stories. And thank you. You and Kubert were really just you know knocking on all cylinders. Um, what was your collaboration like with him? Terrific. I mean, it's I've never worked with a better storyteller than Andy. Um, uh, he, it was plot dialogue. I mean, because I, I wouldn't do a full script for him because it wouldn't make any sense. He's such a great storyteller on his own. So it was always, you know, here's the basic beats we need to hit on this page, and here's some rough draft dialogue for you to kind of get a sense of what they're saying and what they should be expressing. And then the pencils would come in, and I would rewrite all the dialogue that I done because he had done such a magnificent job of storytelling i could take half of it out um it was just a joy i mean i know everybody says that sounds like an old old you know hokey thing to say but i really mean it it was one of the most fulfilling creative experiences of my entire career is working on that book with andy well i mean it definitely i I always thought it showed you know and it looked like again you guys were having the most fun because like what's not fun about kazar yeah well i mean he came to me what happened was he he instigated the book and he wanted to come off X-Men and do something else. He wanted to do it with me. And I'll never forget standing there at a hotel lobby and he decided what he wanted us to do next. He wanted us to do Kazar. And I looked at him like he had a monkey on his head. Like, <laughs> what do you, what do you mean Kazar? Like, I, nobody likes Kazar. What do you, t- I don't like Kazar. What are you talking about? I'm, I'm the most mannered human being. It's like getting Niles Crane to, write Conan this is this is not me at all but once I sat down and thought about the character and really did my digging and find, found my hook into it which was that idea that you know we put forth that because he was 10 or 11 years old when he had the savage land was abandoned it's not Tarzan he didn't grow up learning the ape language he grew up missing McDonald's and missing baseball mm-hmm. you know missing you know moves and so as he gets older and he's got a son, you know, he get nostalgic for that stuff. And that became the driving through line for the, for the series. I have a question about how you approach series these days versus maybe how you would have approached it back then. But like when you approach a, a series now, like Dr. Strange is a good example. How, how far ahead are you planning in your head to be on a book? Cause obviously in the current landscape, things do change rather quickly. Whereas maybe back when you're doing Kazar, there is a more of an expectation that things right. would go on a little bit longer. I really, I, I generally, it's like driving at night. I can see about as far as my headlights will let me see. I just, <laughs> it's, I wish I could tell you that I would have these big giant plans for what I'm doing in all these books. But honestly, a lot of times it's just, you know kind of where I want to go. And I'm going to throw the map out the window. And the fun of it to me is writing. Grant Morrison and I had a good conversation about this once. Grant, Grant and I both believe because he has the same phenomenon. He doesn't really plan in detail what he's doing. He plans in, in broad strokes. But you know, we both found that how much fun it is to, to plant seeds that we didn't even know we were planting and then go back and pick up on things in previous issues that we'd written that feed into you know what's coming up and make it look like we planted them there all along when, in fact, we just kind of threw them in. 
And, you know, Grant's theory, which I subscribe to, is that subconsciously we kind of knew what we were like. Subconsciously, there's a reason we put that thing in that we, did, that we didn't think was going to mean anything that suddenly has become significant four issues later. Um, that's the fun of it to me. Of it to me. Mm-hmm. It's a puzzle. Every issue is a puzzle. Now, working on a book like Doctor Strange, well, first of all, when the, the book kind of, kind of morphs, uh, how early on were you like, The Surgeon Supreme is the best title that we could use? Like, it's such a great idea, and how, how quickly did that come to you? Is that before or after the concept? Actually, the, that was after the concept. We actually didn't have the, have the name of the book until the last second, I don't think. It was, we were just spinning out all kind of variation, variations on that, but Surgeon Supreme made the most sense to me. It wasn't my idea. I think that was editor Darren Chan's idea. Um, but we knew the concept. I mean, we knew, uh, I wish I could take credit credit for it, and frankly, he's forgetful, so I probably could, but I won't. <laughs> it was Tom Brevoort sitting next to me at, the, me at one of the editorial meetings who said, you know, what if he got his hands back? That's all he said. And <laughs> from, from that, I knew that was a million-dollar idea and was astounded that in 55 years, no one had done that. So ran with that ball, that ball, and hopefully, fingers crossed, it'll be a change that's, that sticks for a while. I know that how continuity works. I know how writers are. I know how I can even can even be sometimes. I know that at some point, somebody's going to come and draw a piano on it and reset him back to the way he was in 1962. But fingers crossed, I think it's a I think it's a, one of those changes that opens up opens up a lot more doors than it closes. Well, that was what I was so uh, impressed with when the, with the kind of first establishing issues because you jump so readily into establishing everything about how this is going to work and such a brilliant concept that it, you kind of give you give it legs that if people want to keep going with it, they have the great setup already there. Like you do all the heavy lifting in that first issue, but you do it so well that you almost don't even realize that it's a lot of setup, but it's so brilliant. Thanks. I mean, that's I. I, I there's a lot of things I don't do well, but I know I write first issues well because I, I have a real feel for what you need to need to know. And I have a real conviction that when you get to the end of a first issue, even if it's a cliffhanger ending, you need to know what the premise of the book is. You need to, by the end of issue one, you should know. It's like the issue, the, issue, the first episode of a TV show. You watch it and you don't know all the secrets, but you kind of get a sense of what that show, that show is about and, and what you can expect. And I want that to be the same for a first issue of a comic book too. So I go, so I go, I always just make absolutely sure we hit all the bases. We cover everything. And I really want every, want every first issue I do to be something you could put in somebody's hands who's never read that book before. And they will completely be, 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 you know, in with you without feeling lost. Now working with Kev, now uh, Kev has obviously a very different, um, you know, um, visual style than the previous run that you were doing with the other artists. Um, it's a lot more like there's just something very bombastic about his art and the energy and the you know the, the action set pieces. So how do you go about writing a script for that? Because it looks like you're really kind of giving him the best setup you could. Like he's just dunking everything, and you're just you're just alley ooping everything to him. That's really it. I mean, he's, we've made it. We turn it to make a, a really good team. At first, you know, we don't know quite how we're going to work together. So here's a full script, and you know, I get the pages back, and I look at them and go, sometimes, oh, that's not how I envisioned that, but you know, that's that's just as good, or oh, that's better. You know, nothing looks worse. And as we get into it, we start throwing ideas around, and before you know it, you know, he's pitching in, he's pitching out, pitching out ideas. There's stuff coming up in the next couple of issues that you know are straight up his. Uh, I, I, to be honest, because of the pandemic, I've forgotten whether or not issue five has come out yet. I don't think it has. Um, but, there, yeah. but there's stuff in there that, that he and I jammed on. 
he's just delightful, and he will take the script in its own direction. He's the best example, probably probably the, in a long time with me, where it it actually shows what I've always said, which is that it's my my story up until such time as I hand it over to the artist. At which point, it's our story, mm. and they they have to be invested too, and they can't just be art robots. And Kev takes this to the extreme, and and a lot of times will repace entire sequences or swap sequences around or move things around with, you know, with the, with the condition that, and with the, you know, the, you know, with the courtesy of if this, if this doesn't work or if you don't like this, you know, I change it back and it always works. So, uh, it's a little more work to work on that book because there's the scripting or, you know, there's the, the doing of a, of a script and then there's the revisions based on his artwork that comes back. But since his artwork is so good and because the stories are so, they're so good, uh, I'm willing to take that hit. Mm-hmm. I'm curious how over the years, like when you first started writing comics, how long did, did it take for you to kind of let go and really embrace what the artist was kind of bringing in and start to trust artists more? Uh, and maybe it happened really quickly. I'm just curious how that evolves over time, because obviously when you first start writing, like you have a very clear idea of what you're looking for and you might get something that's a little bit different. So how do you build that trust or how did you learn to kind of let go as well? That's a good question. I mean, I've never really thought about the process of it, it was, some of it is that for the longest time in the 90s, I was, DC put me with a lot of brand new artists because my scripts were basically artist proof. You know, they didn't leave, they they left enough room for interpretation where the artist could feel like they were contributing to the story, but not so much the feel lost and, you know, and the storytelling would end up being bad because I could lead, lead them, sort of lead them by the hand, new guys and new girls working on these books through the, you know, here page by page, panel by panel, here's the storytelling that you, that it's in the script. If you follow, follow the script, storytelling is going to be there. Uh, so I think having worked with enough, <laughs> enough job, I would get them go, boy, that's, that's, that's not, boy, there's no backgrounds there for, for 14 pages. How did that happen? Um, this is a true story, by the way, there was, there was a job I did where the artist, didn't draw backgrounds for 14 pages in a row. And you, you, you kind of just have to go, all right, you know what? It's a periodical business. Get it moving. Now keep it, keep the assembly line moving. Don't get too attached. Move on. So I've, I've learned to make my piece with it. I, you know, and frankly, the, the answer there too, is that if I find that I'm not connecting, if I feel that like I'm not getting back stuff that, I don't ever say it's me or him. I don't ever say, you know, you've got to change this artist because X, Y, and Z. I just work it out where, okay, maybe it's better if I move on to something else because it worked that we're not meshing. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I mean, and, and it works in a bunch of different ways. I mean, Brian Hitch is a good example. I'm sorry, because of the lag time, I feel like I'm interrupting. I'm sorry. Um, but it occurs to me Brian Hitch is, a, is an example of that, but it's a reverse example. We did JLA together for, I don't know, a small handful of issues. And ultimately, he's the one who left. And he didn't leave because he didn't want to – because he, he wanted to do something else specifically. He and I – and it was a really pleasant conversation because we're friends. He said, look, I like telling the gigantic, bombastic, world-spanning stories – and you enjoy the character stuff. You enjoy writing smaller stories about people. And I, you know, I don't, I'm, I don't like drawing that as much. So 
I need to go do something else. That's an example, and that was a perfectly amicable breakup. And you know, we've been talking about doing something new for the last anyway. So we're you know we're still in the same. That's the the team has to gel, and if the team doesn't gel, then it doesn't have to be you know firebombs thrown back and forth. Just be professional and go. You know what? It's it's a team effort, and we're not meshing. So let's go find you know one of us has to go find something to do. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about when you're on a book. So I just go back in time for a second, like Fantastic Four, and you're working with Mike, and then you have an arc with like Howard Porter. What is it like when you you have a long relationship in the middle of this book, and then you're kind of shift gears for an arc, and then you welcome your partner back? Like, is it is it a little bit rough to kind of adapt because you have a shorthand with your primary artist, and now you're switching to another artist, and then go back to the primary? Uh, not really. I mean, it's my scripts are never terribly like incredibly super detailed, like an Alan Moore script or anything like that. My scripts, my 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 rule of thumb is if my script page is longer than you know if my page for a script is longer than one page of manuscript then i've i've done it wrong i'm you know i'm giving you too much information or i'm going into too much detail or i put too much on the page so it's you know i'm not i don't sweat blood over every word of my script to begin with i just it's it's again it's an outline for the it's a it's a place for the artist to start with so i see what you're saying but i just i've never felt that way i've always you know every once in a while a fill in artist will come along that's just great and every once in a while while Phil, Phil and artists will come along that didn't quite get what I was doing or what we were doing, but that's just the business, you know, mm-hmm. keep moving. So this is a bit of a weird question, but I'm curious uh, of all the different scripts you've done. Is there a project that you can kind of look at uh, actually in two different ways? One where it had maybe the loosest of the scripts you can imagine you've ever put together and one kind of being the tightest script you've ever put together and what the, the difference between those projects was? Wow, that's a good question. I mean, the tightest is easy. The tightest was Fantastic Four number 60, which is my first issue of Fantastic Four. Hmm. Because Tom Brevoort and I really, 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 really wanted that to be a home run and wanted it to be the perfect first issue and wanted it to be the perfect, you know, entry-level Fantastic Four book. And I'm very proud of it. And Tom regards it as the best comic book he's ever edited. And so I'm, I'm very proud of that. And that was, even though I'd worked with Mike, before it was still an incredibly tight script because we we really were like I said working to make sure it hit every single note exactly but in terms of broader stuff I wish I had a better answer for you I bet if you know if you gave me a week to think about it I'd have an answer but I got nothing right now that's fair (laughs) it's it's a weird question yeah it is and it's it's a good question I just I wish I had a better answer off the top of my head Okay. Well, we've used up your time, so I really appreciate you uh, coming on. My question to the next one is just uh, what else can you talk talk about that's still coming up, hopefully at some point when publishing resumes? When publishing resumes, Doctor Strange gets really good again. Um, there's, there's, you know, we're, we're sort of paying off, off the stuff we've set up in the first few issues about somebody stealing stuff from Doc's Magical Four Forge and selling it on the black market and he's got to get a handle on that it's sort of like armor wars but with magic magic <laughs> uh and then everything else i'm doing and there's some stuff lined up is well i mean, we did announce we're doing i'm doing a two-issue squadron supreme miniseries for the empire or marvel's empire tie-in book or, the, or it's event i'm doing the tie-in book and that was fun that was that was taking the justice league that i know and love and putting a marvel spin on it and on it 
and sort of taking it in some directions where it may feel like a letter to the Justice League, and then you get to turn the page, and it's really super not a love letter to the Justice League. <laughs> uh, that that was fun, and there's other stuff, but it, it, none of it's been announced yet. Some of it's with companies that would surprise you, and some conversations this week about nailing some of that down. Last question, I promise. I'm curious. You've, you did. No, our, you, so you did. I've, our, got, I've got a few more minutes. <laughs> I got a few more minutes. If you, I've got a few more minutes. If you want to, if there's stuff that was on the message board that was, you know, put down, throw those out to me too. That's fine. I got a few minutes. Okay. Well, first one would be, um, you know, you did Archie 1941. You did Archie 1955. Are we going to get another decade series? I'd love to. I mean, Brian Augustine and I really, really, really want to do Archie, Archie 1968. We really want to do the, the summer of love, 67, 68. We want to do the summer of love. We want the gang to be in, you know, to travel to San Francisco and, and do with that. It's going to be tricky if we ever get, if we ever get the green light to do it because summer of love means sex. Summer of love means drugs. Summer of love means a bunch of stuff. We can't sully the, the five main characters, but at the same time, they were really good about giving us some latitude with 41 and 55 to take the characters in directions that weren't necessarily as squeaky clean as the characters, the, the mainstream Archie characters tend to have to have to be. They give us a lot of latitude to be very dramatic. And I, Archie 41, and I credit Brian Augustine, and I credit, credit Peter Krause, who's the artist. And it's one of the things that I've done that, I've done that I'm proudest of. I think that just turned out really well. Well, it's a, it's a beautiful book, but hunting, that's for sure. Thank you. So another question, I guess, is that, well, I've always wanted to ask, but like, how did you, I mean, you when you brought kind of Archie uh, and did, you know, kind of the reinvention of Archie and as we know it now, how did that even come about? Because it would, would not have been one thing that I would have thought, oh, Mark Wade's going to do Archie, but it was so good and so grounded and felt like that should have been the TV series, not what we actually ended up getting. No offense to Riverdale, but it was just so... <laughs> Because it had so much charm, and yet it was, you know, and it was still the characters you knew, but also with a, such a modern spin, it just felt so natural that, like, why haven't we had this before? I, that's a good question. I thank you. I'm, I, I, again, really proud of that work too. I that was Mike Pellerito. That was straight up Archie editor Mike Pellerito and maybe Alex Segura, who was all there and and guy working with him. I don't, but Mike was the point man, and Mike called me up out of the blue. I was driving cross country from California to Indiana, and I got a phone call, and we'd like to take over the Archie books and really completely make them over and, and do something fresh and new. And I, my, my first, the third, the first words out of my mouth were, "You know, I'm 53 years old, right? <laughs> like I'm not exact. I don't exactly have my finger on the pulse, but it worked out. I mean, he talked me into it when he said Fiona Staples was on it. That was it. I mean, that that locked it. That meant that." You're, you're really sending a shot across the bow, showing people visually that this is not their dad's Archie, and this can be something new and fresh. And so it was just so much fun. It was so great to be able to write comedy, and it was so good since Impulse. I haven't really had a chance to do it that in, that much in depth. You know, write comedy with a dramatic twang to it, a comedy where you can laugh on one page and you can turn the page and suddenly gasp because something's happened that's shocking and dramatic and move back and forth between those two worlds. Uh, and I know those, I, I just, I knew those characters like the back of my hand when I studied them and really, really dug deep. And 
And here's a tidbit for you. The, the, they gave me my head. I mean, they basically let me do what I wanted to do, knowing that I would be respectful, knowing that I would not take a chainsaw to the character, knowing I wouldn't make, you know, Jughead a meth addict or anything like that just <laughs> to make him a meth addict. I would treat the characters with respect. The one place where I pitched an idea that for the characters in the relaunch that they didn't like, and in retrospect, I think they made the right choice, was uh, it was trying to make the characters as contemporary as possible. And what is more contemporary these days, and, and has been you know for, for many decades now, than uh, a divided family? Uh, so I had this notion that I floated to them that uh, Archie lived with his dad and his stepmother. The woman that we've always known as a mother in previous continuity, we still retain her, but she's the stepmother. And that leaves Archie's mother out there somewhere as an interesting character we can pull in at some point. And I thought, that's pretty cool. It doesn't change the dynamic very much. But they came back and they said, that that's a bridge too far. We really think it needs to be like nothing is unusual about Archie because he's the hub of the wheel, right? Hmm. All the other characters, the spokes, all the other characters are, are what you would do if you took normal and then took a step left or step right. Uh, but Archie is the, if the center of this universe, given the parameters of this universe, Archie's got to be just as completely normal and without any affectations, without any weirdness or without any sort of tragedy or whatever. He's got to be just the most normal guy in the world. With the, with the most uneventful life, because that's the purpose he serves. He's the hub of the wheel, and it's everybody else's job to have their wacky adventures. And then it all comes back down to, you know, how does that demonstrate a side of Archie you've not seen before? How does you know when when Betty does this and this? How does Archie react in a way that we've not seen before? Which character did you find was the most comfortable or the just the, the easiest voice to kind of nail? As you said, you already kind of knew all these characters anyway, but, I mean, which one did you find was the, the exceptionally the easiest? To, you just had the dialogue just coming right out of you. I, it really is a four-way tie. You take Reggie out of the equation, it's a four-way tie. I thought it was going to be Jughead, and at first it was Jughead, because then I thought that was going to be my, my spirit animal in the story. <laughs> and the further I got into it, I realized it was Betty. It was Betty that, that was actually the most fun to write, but the voice... And the voice was there, but the words were harder because there's so much emotion there. And I was doing things with that character that had not been done and doing stuff that I'd never seen in comics done before between characters. Um, whereas Archie, easy, Jughead, super easy, even Veronica. You know, once you just once you nail down the core of these characters, you know, Veronica loves Archie because it makes her father upset and crazy. Then, boy, Veronica's a sense to write it's, it gets pretty easy after a while mm-hmm. I'm sure you've been asked this one many times but if you had to choose between uh, Betty and Veronica who do you choose Betty Betty straight up Betty straight up Betty Betty come on Betty's going to be there through thick and thin Betty's going to be there was reliable Veronica yeah, has a whole other thing going on you know is she hotter probably does she have a lot more money money probably are you going to have to look over your shoulder every moment of every day wondering if the next next hotter guy is going to come along and sweep her off her feet? Yes, you are. <laughs> That's very true. Um, I'll switch off of Archie just for a second. I'm curious, um, this actually did come from a message board. They asked you to name your favorite handful of Marvel Masterworks. Favorite favorite handful of Marvel Masterworks? Easy as the Defenders chunk. The first five volumes of Defenders, because that's my, my that 
and the Avengers Celestial Madonna story are my two favorite Marvel runs of all time. The Steve Gerber Defenders specifically and the Celestial Madonna stuff in Avengers. And in fact, those are the only masterworks I kept when I, I, pur- I purged my collection, put a lot of it on consignment, uh, knowing that I had a lot of the stuff I really I really wanted. And, and I'd rather have it in uh, Omnibus anyway because you get the letters pages that way. Mm. Uh, but the but the but those specifically those are the only those are the only masterworks I actually have on my shelf anymore. Oh wow! Which, when you speak of omnibuses, I'm curious what's like what's your number one omnibus? What's the one where you're like, well, if I have to get rid of all the others, I have to keep this one. That's a good question. That's a really good question. I, I keep because I keep meaning to just run with them, go do a deep deep dive. Here's you know, start with Avengers one and just go and do a complete read through. And I never seem to find the time, but I'm but. It probably would be. It probably would be that that first Fantastic Four, just because. Just, come on, that's just the DNA of the Marvel Universe is all in there. Absolutely. What uh, what title do you think you haven't had a chance to do in the Marvel Universe? I mean, you've you've written so many different characters. Uh, which one has eluded you, or is there some weird character that you, that C or D list that you'd love to elevate just for one series or a mini series or one story? I've managed to get a, a handle on it one time or another. The, the only two major Marvel characters I've never taken a swing at are Thor and Iron Man. I have no interest in Thor because I think he's a great character, but I've, I've always been a science boy and boy and not a, about mythology. Uh, and but Iron Man might be. I've never, I've never, I've never sat down in front of Tom Reborn and said I demand to do Iron Man. It's just never come up. But I have a million, a million Iron Man ideas, and I think Iron Man, I think Tony Stark would be a great fun to write. Uh, so. Now, if I can knock that out someday, then I can feel like I made my complete tour around the Marvel Universe. It's hard because because you know every time I do a new Marvel project, we have to look and see. Okay, what have you not done before? <laughs> and it's it's a shorter and shorter list every time I swap out. When you look at someone like Iron Man, like what what is the quintessential Iron Man to you, or what would most inform any direction you might go in? Like what kind of in, interpretation of the character do you find? that you would probably springboard off of? Is it kind of the more MCU movie version that we kind of have more in the comics now, or is it more of a, a deep dive from the original comics? I would do I would do more of a deep dive. I would start with the, you know, the Stan and Larry Lieber and, you know, Kirby stuff back and down heck stuff back in the day. I just, to, to, I always feel like going back to ground doesn't mean you tell those stories over again. It doesn't mean you're wedded to the silver age. You're trying to emulate the silver age. It just means go back to ground Figure out what the DNA of that series is, and expand off that. I would, and then I would the MCU Iron Man. I mean, you know, Iron Man was a C-list character, but maybe a B-list character at best. But nobody, your mother, didn't know who Iron Man was. Now the whole world knows who Iron Man is, and there is probably not since Christopher Reeve has there been a, a more perfect matchup of actor and role. The moment everybody saw Robert Downey Jr. in that role, every single Marvel writer, the, the next time they wrote Tony Stark, wrote it with Robert Downey Jr.'s voice because you can't not. It's just so perfect. It's interesting to see something like that because, I mean, there's a few characters where I think that they've had such a transformation. Now, his was obviously because of the movie, but even a character like Hawkeye, once Hawkeye was written by uh, Fraction, I feel like that's the version of Hawkeye we've gotten ever since. Like, no one's kind of gone back to the pre-Fraction Hawkeye, and it's just interesting to see when those moments happen where those voices change forever, and they never kind of go back to any old interpretations because there's just a new standard. And it doesn't happen that often, but it's interesting when it does. 
it does. I mean, it's it's easier to do with somebody like Hawkeye because you know I. If you waterboarded me, I couldn't tell you my favorite Hawkeye story before Fraction. I mean, and <laughs> nobody could. It's he's been one of those characters that everybody likes, but you know, there's never been. He's never had his born again. He's never had his year one. He's never had his big transformational story until Matt came along, and then suddenly that's what you're going to stick with. So that makes sense. It's harder to do that with. It's harder to, to do a, a change and a line in the sand with somebody like Daredevil because you know I did my my did my duty. With I did more consecutive issues. Than anybody who ever worked on the book, including the editors, um, including Bendis, including every writer, every colorist, every letterer, every artist. I did more consecutive issues of Daredevil than anybody, and, I, and I'm proud of it. The moment I left, you know, then Charles Soule took his own swing at it and reputation, and that's fine. That, you know, it keeps the characters fresh and it keeps the, the books alive. And, you know, as a writer, you kind of hope someday you'll be able to put something down that stands the test of time like that but it, the reality is it doesn't happen that often hmm. with uh, with working on Daredevil and obviously the relationship between you and Somni that kind of came out of that like how many I mean obviously you've had a lot of amazing collaborations over the years but which are the ones that kind of seem to test to really stand the test of time because you guys worked on a project and you kept migrating together um, Somni's one I mean that's you know, and again, work with him any day, any time. Andy Kubert, Barry Kitson, obviously, we, you know, our paths cross more often than not. We're always looking for something new to do together. Um, and now I'm leaving guys off. Now I'm immediately leaving artists off the, off the list by accident. So let's change the subject before I offend anybody. Absolutely. Um, okay, well, I, this is kind of a, a sad question, but um, is there one project that you've worked on in, the, let's say, the last 10 years or 15 years where you've thought, man, I wish Mike was around to draw this. And again, I don't mean, like, I don't mean to dredge up yeah, any we, bad feelings, but like, obviously you guys had such an amazing relationship yeah. and he was taken far too soon. I'm just curious what has kind of stuck out as that this would have been great for him. There's, there's nothing because the ones that we wanted to do were nothing that I ever got around to. The, th- the three that we were really hot for were Aquaman, where we did a pitch that DC didn't, lo- didn't like because the, the, the publisher didn't like it. Mike's work. I mean, full stop. The publisher did not like Mike's work, so it made it difficult to get anything off the ground. So we wanted to do Iron. We wanted to do Aquaman. We wanted to do Shazam, and we wanted to do the Legion Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. And none of that stuff ever came about. And at this point, I don't think I could envision doing those without Mike because it was just so much part of the the vision that we had about you know, the shared vision we had when we would talk about these characters and talk about what we wanted to do. So that would be the set. And they're all with Mike, all the ones that I really wanted to do that. Those would be the ones mm, for sure. All right. Well, you know, you've been more than generous with your time. I really appreciate it. It's always great to have you on. We'll have you on at some point in the future, I'm sure. But, uh, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And uh, take care and go wash your hands. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>